We pray, Lord, sanctify us by your truth. Your word is truth. We ask you to bless us as we sit again and get to hear and study and learn your word this morning. Please send your Holy Spirit to us to, to work through your word to build faith and confidence in our hearts and to equip us uh, to live for you in the last days of this world. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if you ever want to waste some time on the internet, and who doesn't want to do that? Good for you. Wow. Uh, please don't. But for the rest of us that enjoy wasting time on the internet, um, I don't know if I'd recommend this, but you could do it. You could Google the phrase, oddly unsatisfying pictures. Oddly unsatisfying pictures. Or to get similar results, you could type in the phrase, pictures that drive perfectionists crazy. In either case, you're going to get a set of pictures that look kind of like these. I'll give you a few examples. Or this one. Maybe you can tell me after the service which ones of these bother you the most. You could also have this one. Didn't quite straighten the cover where it should be. So, for some people, I'm told, these pictures fill you with anxiety. They make you very, very uncomfortable. And why is it that these kinds of pictures would bother us so much? It's because, right, our eye is drawn to a sense of balance and proportion. And so when something is clearly imbalanced and it's disproportionate, it just makes us feel uncomfortable. With that in mind, today is our last sermon, or our last section, looking at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And in the portion of the Sermon on the Mount that we're going to talk about here, Jesus is going to say some things that feel a little bit imbalanced and disproportionate. And so the things that Jesus says are also going to make us feel kind of uncomfortable, sort of like those pictures. Um, so with that introduction, let's go right to the text and let's look at a few of these uncomfortable phrases of Jesus, starting at uh, verse 38 of Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says, he's, he's midstream of his sermon, so now he, he says this next part. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Do any of those words make you feel uncomfortable? I mean, I think those words make me feel pretty uncomfortable. And the reason is because they're so obviously unfair. Right? Fairness is something that's super important to us. We all know this. Even from childhood, we need things to be fair. And that's why we say things like, she got 12 pretzels and I only got 11 pretzels. It's not fair. Uh, but really, from childhood on, we want things to be fair. We want things to be equal and balanced and proportionate. And maybe this is why we get so frustrated when someone wrongs us or hurts us. Because, like, here we are going along with our life, and all of a sudden they came in and they physically hurt us or they stole something that belonged to us, or they harmed our reputation, or they ruined our, our sense of, of safety, whatever the case may be, 
it now feels imbalanced. Like one person has come in and done all of this harming, and the other person is just sitting there getting harmed. It's not fair. So there needs to be a reaction. There needs to be a pushback. There needs to be some kind of justice. We feel this very deeply um, as human beings. Now, do you recognize this picture? It's a statue of Lady Justice, like justice personified. And a statue like this would be outside of courthouses all across the world, I think. Um, do you recognize what she's holding? She's holding a scale. And this is the point, right? This is the point of a justice system. It's to balance things out and make sure that they're proportionate. If a harmful action has happened, there needs to be an equal and opposite reaction. So criminals need to pay for their crimes. Victims need to receive restitution for what has happened to them, and so on and so forth, until things are sort of equal. Now, we could talk at a different time about human justice systems and what's the best kind and how well do they work and could there be corruption and abuse even within our own justice system. But the point is, every society on earth has some kind of system like this. We need it. We, we crave it. Justice and balance are so important to us. And justice was super important in the ancient world too. So back in 1750 B.C., before any of us were around, uh, there lived a gentleman named Hammurabi. Has anybody heard of Hammurabi? He was a, thank you, uh, thank you somebody for immediately recognizing Hammurabi. He was a Moabite, sorry, an Amorite king. And the reason that Hammurabi is famous is he put together one of the best known law codes in the ancient world. Very organized, very detailed. And his law code contained the concept, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And how did they go about implementing this in their law system? Well, it was exactly what it sounds like. So if you got in a fight and you punched somebody in the eye and it caused them to go blind, you would go to court and they would hit you in your eye until you were blind. And now things are even. If you got in a fight and you knocked out somebody's tooth, you would go to court and they would knock out your tooth. And now things are even. Fairness. Balance. I guess technically, but, but pretty brutal. Now, 250 years after Hammurabi, that's the time that the Israelites were traveling um, through the wilderness on their way to the Promised Land. About 1500 B.C., Moses is leading the Israelites, and they stopped at Mount Sinai, and God gave them a law code, the Law of Moses. And interestingly, the Law of Moses also contained this phrase, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But God's implementation of this principle was much more compassionate. So the Jewish courts were not in the business of gouging out anybody's eyes or knocking out their teeth. What they would do if you fought someone and blinded them is they would maybe calculate your income, the income that person could have had, and then the income they lost because now they're blinded in that eye, and they would add it up, and maybe you would have to pay a substantial fine to equalize things and provide justice. Really not that different from getting sued in a court today, right? An effort to balance things out. But again, what is the point? Fairness, balance, justice, these things are very, very important to us. With all of that in mind, what Jesus is saying in these verses doesn't sound right at all. It sounds very unjust. It sounds very imbalanced. Jesus says, I know you've heard an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, like things should be even and proportionate, but here's what I'm saying. If somebody slaps you on the cheek, 
don't do anything back to them, then maybe let them slap you on the other cheek as well. If someone sues you and takes your shirt, obviously they need clothing, so just go out of your way and provide them with a coat as well. If someone forces you to walk a mile, and by the way, that reference is to Roman conscription, where the Romans could come grab a random citizen and force him to carry something. Remember when Jesus was carrying his cross and he ran out of strength? So they pulled a guy, Simon of Cyrene, out of the crowd and put that cross on him and made him carry it. The Romans could do this at any time. If a Roman soldier conscripts you and forces you to carry something for a mile, obviously he needs help, so carry it for an extra mile just to help him out. We hear these words and we say, okay, Jesus, I get it. I'm supposed to be kind and gentle and nice to people. But Jesus, don't you understand how imbalanced this is? I've been hit. I've been robbed. I've been inconvenienced. I am the person who has been wronged in these scenarios. Things are out of balance and it's all sliding onto me. So I shouldn't have to go through any more trouble for the sake of that person who wronged me. They owe me. Something needs to get equalized here. Instead, Jesus' words seem to make it even more imbalanced. Do you get that? So that, that's why Jesus' words make us really uncomfortable. But if you're not uncomfortable yet, let's read the next verse, which should make us even more uncomfortable. Jesus says, You've heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Let's start at the beginning of this section. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said. Who was saying this? Apparently, it was the religious leaders. So in the Old Testament, God had said, love your neighbor. And then over the years, this had become a catchphrase where the leaders had added, love your neighbor and also hate your enemy. And when you think about the history of God's Old Testament people, you can totally see why this would have been a popular phrase. Um, think about their enemies and those enemy nations who in the Old Testament led them into idol worship, and then captured them and took them off into exile. Then the Greek enemies took over, and they were terribly evil and corrupt. I read this week about one king named Antiochus Epiphanes who marched into Jerusalem during the time that the Greeks were in charge, and he killed off tens of thousands of citizens just because he wanted to. And then the Romans took over with their own brand of violence and their own brand of cruelty and their own false gods. And if you think that it must have been offensive and troublesome for the Israelites to get exiled out of their promised land, can you imagine how humiliating it must have been to have their promised land occupied by the Romans? Have you ever seen pictures of World War II where the German soldiers are occupying France? So people in Paris are trying to go to work, they're trying to go to the market or to school, and anywhere you go, there's a smug German soldier standing on the corner, maybe smoking his cigarette, and he can call you over and ask to see your papers, and he can mock you, and he can humiliate you, he can kind of do whatever he wants, and you can't do a thing about it because his forces are occupying your country. And every time you walk past the corner and you see that soldier stationed there, you hate everything he stands for. This, I think, is how the Jewish people felt about the Romans occupying their promised land. They, they hated them. So when the, when the religious leaders said, love your neighbor and hate your enemies, that was a political statement. And that was like a unifying statement for the Jewish people that 
any red-blooded Jewish person could totally get behind. Of course we love our neighbors and take care of each other. Of course we hate those Gentile Roman enemies. Except Jesus just says something totally different. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. What could be more unjust, more unfair, more imbalanced than going out of your way to love a person who hates you? And why would this ever be our mindset? Well, the reason, Jesus says, is because it's God's mindset. Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Because after all, he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on both the righteous and the unrighteous. And you think about how God treats our world. Think of how he treated Adam and Eve and continued to pour out blessings on them even after they had sinned against him. You think of how God treated his Old Testament people and continued to pour out blessings even though they had sinned against him. And think of still today just our whole world, how God pours out blessings of life and health and strength on young and old, on men and women, on rich and poor, on fine upstanding citizens and criminals who are locked up in jail. God does not discriminate. He pours out his daily blessings for all people because he loves them. But God doesn't just want us to have daily blessings in this world, right? God wants us to have eternal blessings, blessings in the world to come. And if that is going to happen, it's only going to happen if our problem of sin and evil is dealt with. And so God proposes a solution that is utterly surprising to us. We want things to be balanced out, equalized, justice and proportion. God decides to save the world and save us by letting things become drastically unfair. By tipping the scales so far that all the sin of the combined human race all slides down to one side onto one person, and it all slides down onto Jesus. And then in exchange, Jesus' perfect life that he lived and the things he worked so hard to do, all of the right things, all of those things get applied to our account and we get to be rewarded for all of the good things that we didn't do. Right? So it's unfair when Jesus gets punished for our sins. It's doubly unfair when we get rewarded for his life and yet it is through unfairness that God is going to save the world. It's through unfairness that God has saved you. You just think about it. You think of all of your sins, all the sins that you have ever done all the sins that you ever will do, your pride, your selfishness, your greed, your lust, whatever it might be, all of that piled up onto Jesus. And he went and paid for it all already. And then you think of every second of Jesus' life that was completely perfect, every good thing that he ever did, all accumulated for you, and that's just given over to you on the other side. It's tremendously unfair and yet it's through unfairness that God has made us his children and won for us an eternity with him in heaven. So the question then is, what impact should that have on our life here on this earth? Right? And that's really what Jesus is getting at in these verses. We have been rescued because we had a Savior who was willing to take the hit for us and endure an eternity of injustice for us. What might it look like 
if we were willing to take a small hit and endure some kind of injustice for somebody else. By the way, this is an important point to make. Jesus is not saying that as a Christian, you have no value as a person. And you should allow yourself to get pummeled. And you should let people treat you however they want to. And you don't matter. And you have no rights. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying when you show love to someone that is totally unexpected, love that's modeled after your Father in heaven and his love for you, people are going to notice. Let me tell you one story of what this looks like in practice. Uh, Once upon a time, there were some early Christians who were traveling around telling people about Jesus in a very hostile environment. Their names were Paul and Silas. So Paul and Silas were in a city called Philippi, and they were telling everybody about Jesus, and as happened to them, frequently they got arrested and they got thrown in jail, and they were brutally whipped and beaten up and put into jail, kind of beaten like maybe almost within an inch of their life, and yet the jailer turned out to be a particularly cruel man because not only did he lock them up, but he put them in the stocks so that they would be very physically uncomfortable the whole night long. So there Paul and Silas are. They've been brutalized, they've been beaten, and they've been especially tortured by this jailer. Now they're sitting locked up in jail, encouraging each other with songs and prayers and encouraging the other prisoners as well. But then in the middle of the night, there is an earthquake. A huge earthquake so big it breaks the wall of the prison open and it causes some of the chains to break loose so that the prisoners can be free. And the Romans had a law for their jailers. If a prisoner ever escaped, the jailer got killed. It was a great, clear way. There's no gray area. It's black and white. It's a great way to make sure there's no corruption, right? Doesn't matter the circumstances. If your prisoner escapes, you get killed. So this jailer, who had been so cruel to them, comes running out in the night with a torch, and he's looking around, and he sees the wall broken open. He sees the chains hanging loose, and he knows what's going to happen. He's lost multiple prisoners, escaped into the night. He's going to get tortured to death. And he decides he would rather die quickly now, and so he takes out his sword and prepares to commit suicide. But then he hears a voice shouting from the darkness of the jail. And the voice says, Don't harm yourself. We're all still here. And sure enough, they were. Paul and Silas, who he had gone out of his way to be so cruel to just a few hours ago, they had worked to keep all the prisoners there, and now they were shouting to make sure that that jailer could keep his life and could be safe. And the jailer's mind was blown. This this doesn't happen. This made no sense. They should have all escaped. They should have been attacking him. And he fell to his knees and said, What must I do to be saved? Clearly these people have some connection with God. And maybe you remember how the story ended. Before the night was over, the jailer and his whole family had become Christians. The jailer and his whole family were all baptized. Totally undeserved, totally unexpected love is extremely powerful. And the more undeserved and unexpected it is, the more powerful it is. And so Jesus encourages us to show a kind of love that nobody else is showing. A kind of love that's going to shock the world. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? Everybody loves their friends. 
If you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? Everybody greets their friends. But love for your enemies, that's different. That's special. That's not something that happens very often. That's something that makes the world sit up and take notice. And so, today, Jesus maybe has a question for you. Who is a person in your life who treats you terribly? Who hates you? And they've basically given you every reason to hate them back. Who is a person in our society who loathes everything that you stand for? And you would justifiably have every reason to loathe them back. What would it look like if you went out of your way to show love to that person instead? Think of that person and think of loving them. And, and maybe it feels impossible. Because as we said at the beginning of this sermon, when someone has done something wrong to us, it feels like it's imbalanced and we want to equalize it out and push back and get our justice but think about this for a second. How often do we really get justice? Or how perfectly do we really get justice in this world? Can our justice system undo the crimes that have happened? Let's say, like, what would be the worst case scenario? If someone murders a member of your family, and then that person gets the death penalty, does that bring your family member back? No. Now you just have two people who have died. But we have a God who raises people to life, who's promised to raise us all to life at the last day. And God can and he will provide perfect justice and righteousness in heaven. In heaven, there will be no more uh, imbalances. There will be no more unfairness. There will be no more disproportionate things. We will be safe and secure with our God forever, and we will be perfectly satisfied. And when we know that, like perfect justice is coming in heaven, that sets us free to go ahead and absorb some small injustices on this earth. And we can say, yeah, that person deserves to have me hit them back. Yeah, that person deserves to have me destroy their possessions, to have me ruin their reputation, to have me take away their peace of mind. But I'm not going to do it. Because I have a Savior who absorbed an eternity's worth of injustice for me. And maybe... Just maybe, if my love looks like his, I could influence where somebody else gets to spend their eternity. And what an incredible story that would be to be a part of. And God grant those kinds of stories to all of us, for Jesus' sake.